When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori, which is a carbon removal marketplace based in Seattle. Today I have with me Jeff Goodell, contributing editor of Rolling Stone, author of The Water Will Come, and his latest, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you. I really liked your previous book, uh, The Water Will Come. Um, and now you're doing fire. So you did one on water, one on fire. Are you going to do a tour of the Greek elements? <laughs> well, this is not exactly fire. This is heat, which is a little bit different than fire. <laughs> That's true. They're they're related, but it's interesting that fire actually doesn't make that much of an appearance in here. Is there is there much of anything about fire? Here? A little bit about it, yeah. Um, you know about it, about um, how more extreme heat dries out uh, landscapes and dries and stresses trees and makes them more prone to these larger, hotter wildfires like we've been seeing, and some of the air pollution consequences of that from the you know the wildfire smoke and things. So I talk about it a little bit, but I don't really go into it a lot. One thing that caught my attention in your latest is that when I read the water will come so much of that is about how the U.S. military is preparing for climate change and what they're doing they're, they're practical people they want to make sure bases don't flood that their readiness is is up as up as it can be but that didn't seem to be as uh prominent in a story about heat but given their uh theaters of operation you would expect heat to figure into military calculations but is it not happening or, or are you just not tracking that one as closely yeah, I just, I mean, it's happening a lot. A lot of the research um, on heat impacts on human bodies and things comes from military uh, researchers. And the military has done a lot on heat. Um, several of the scientists, the physiologists that I talked to in the book are former military uh, researchers and physiologists. Um, the whole idea of a, a what's called a wet bulb standard, which is a a, a more accurate way of measuring temperatures the actual effects on on a person uh including sun sunlight it's you know solar radiation and humidity and air temperature and wind speed and all that kind of stuff it's a it's a very accurate measurement that is used by heat researchers called wet bulb temperatures that was developed in the military but yeah i don't have as much about it in this book simply because heat was and is an immense topic and um i just sort of felt like i had done as much as i could and like you know i mean i could have kept working on this book for another 12 years um <laughs> so i had to draw some limits yeah fair enough there is a lot covered here there's lots of great reportage too where it's you know heavily vignetted there's lots of stories of, of people it's surprising i've had heat related experiences too one hiking to the river and back in the grand canyon i went too late in the season one year and by, by the time we 
were like a mile or two out from Indian Wells or Indian Springs or whatever it's called. I was like, I need water right now, or I feel physically endangered. And then last year I played disc golf in Arizona during a shoulder season. It wasn't like I was there in the summer. I think I was there like early fall and I had to stop. I was getting nauseous about halfway through just because I couldn't continue. And um, I don't think I realized how imperiled I was with both of those where you have stories of reasonably physically fit people just dying from heat in yeah. cases like that. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I, as you know, in the book, tell a story of my, about myself climbing a volcano in Nicaragua on a humid day. Uh, this was before I started the book um, and wasn't, I knew nothing about the heat, risk of heat. And, you know, I felt um, part way up this hike, all of a sudden, you know, my heart started pounding. I started getting really dizzy. Um, I started sweating and a in an uncontrollable way. It was just like water pouring, pouring off me. And I had no idea what was happening to me. I, I I had no idea. And luckily, some of the people who were with me did have some idea. But, um, you know, like most people, I was ter terribly undereducated or uneducated about the risks of heat. And, you know, it was a similar walk like that in Phoenix a few years later, when I was thinking about what to do for a next book, when I uh, had to walk just 12 blocks and got dizzy and and you know felt my heart pounding that i thought okay there's people don't understand including myself don't understand the risks of extreme heat and what it does to the body and that's sort of where this book was really born uh, out of what it did to me and my understanding that i didn't understand what it was doing to me yeah i think i remember that from that phoenix walk were you like down by the convention centers and and the ballpark and stuff in phoenix mm -hmm. yeah it's all concrete and it's just yeah so reflective and it's harsh yeah it's brutal and you know the air temperature that day was 115 or so and it was probably 140 degrees there because of the reflective heat and you know this urban heat island effect is well-known phenomenon in every city and, and in phoenix especially in that area it's particularly bad the most striking I've ever seen the difference in shade coverage is in Mexico City, where you land at the airport and you're at like a Neza, like on the east side, and uh, there's no trees. It's just concrete baking. And then if you go to Condesa and Roma, like like everyone on Instagram is right now, it's nothing but trees. And it's, you know, two digit degrees cooler everywhere you go. And how does that add up over time and result in different life experiences and how that might affect people's health overall? Well, uh, you know, I mean, it, 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 heat doesn't have a cumulative effect on one's body, right? It has a, I mean, it does have a cumulative effect in the, in the like day to day thing, but it, it doesn't have a cumulative effect sort of year to year. So, I mean, basically what it means is that, you know, people who live in wealthier shaded areas and shade is very much correlated throughout the world with, with wealth. Um, I feel it here in Austin, Texas, where I live. I felt it in Mexico City also. I wrote about it in Mexico City. Um, you know, it it's just simply a much more hospitable place. And, you know, trees require space and money to maintain and everything. And they, um, you know, poor neighborhoods simply don't have them. They have just, you know, in Mexico City or here in Austin, they're concrete sidewalks you know, lack of trees. Sometimes, you know, there's tree planting campaigns that go on here and in Houston and other in Phoenix where they attempt to put in trees and they do. But, you know, it's really easy to 
gather up a bunch of people and get some money to plant some trees, but it's a lot harder to keep them alive, um, especially in these kinds of hot places and to keep them watered and everything. And so the long-term life expectancy, I think the long the life expectancy of a street tree in Phoenix is seven years, which is just nothing. And especially when you think about what you really need are, you know, sort of large, large canopy trees. Yeah, when I think of uh, Phoenix too, I think of Palo Verde and things that are, you know, trying to limit water loss, but they don't have large, like deciduous leaves. Right. So they're not giving as much shade as you would get from someplace like in Seattle where I am. Right. Yeah. But we also have uh, Seattle's cutting down trees right now. There's there's conflict over uh, the density versus trees and like how much we're actually able to plant right now. And then also there's not that many different varieties of trees that are planted here. So there's also concern about pests and as the range of these change with, with heat changes, what should cities be doing right now? I feel like a lot of these problems have uh, a lot of different facets to it and it's not clear how cities are gonna react to this. Yeah, and, you know, and every city's different, and you know the requirements of different cities are different. But um, the, to take street trees as an example, I mean, you know, they the, one of the problems is now that because there, our climate is changing so fast, is that a tree that you plant that works well today is probably going to be a very the, that same environment is going to be very different in twenty years, and that tree is not going to do so well in twenty years. So there's a lot of uh, urban arborists and tree planting organizations are thinking about, you know, planting the tree for 20 or 25 years from now, which means a different tree than than you would plant if you believed that the climate were going to stay the same, which of course it's not. So, you know, but I mean, tree planting is just one aspect of what cities can be do be doing and, you know, are beginning to do here in Austin. They're starting an experiment of, um, painting the streets white um, in some neighborhoods in order to increase reflectivity. Has that already um, started? Is that already underway? Yeah, they're, 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 yeah, it's only, it's only, you know, maybe a 20 block area right now, but um, it's happening. LA has been doing it. Uh, Vegas has been doing it. Phoenix is doing it. Um, you know, it's, it's helpful on the margins. Um, there's a lot of white roof initiatives uh, around the world, lots of different cities. That's a very easy way to, um, increase reflectivity and lower the sort of urban heat um you know limiting vehicles from downtown and and creating more green spaces you know is a big thing paris is doing a great job of that of you know bringing sort of nature back into cities and and turning you know these parking oases into kind of green oases that helps a lot so there are you know there are a lot of things that cities can do to help cool off and give people access to cooler places in public spaces, but it's takes a while and cities are, you know, took hundreds of years to build these cities. It's going to take a long time to kind of reimagine them in a way that is suitable for our rapidly changing climate. How bad do you and the scientists working on this think heat is going to be? I worry about someplace like Phoenix potentially becoming uninhabitable. I have a lot of faith in human adaptation and ingenuity, but some, some, you can't fight the wet bulb effect <laughs> to some degree either. Like how, how much room is there for us actually to figure this out or what places will have to be abandoned? Well, you know, when you ask, you know, will places become uninhabitable? You know, the first 
response to that is like uninhabitable for who and at what cost, right? I mean, mm. obviously, we can live on Mars if we have an, enough infrastructure and enough money and, you know, the right kind of rockets and all that kind of thing. You know, I'm just reading a book right now about these submarines that have voyaged down to the deepest parts of the ocean trenches, you know, I mean, we can survive in all kinds of extreme climates. It's just for how long and who and at what cost. So, you know, Phoenix is and has been a boom town because it's a place with cheap real estate, low taxes. Everybody wants to go there and hang out in their shorts and their flip-flops. And, you know, it's sort of there's something, you know, kind of everybody likes warm weather. Well, not everybody, but most people prefer warm weather. It's it's a, there's a lot of virtues to it. But those virtues very quickly, you know, get reversed when temperatures get too high. You know, once it's one thing to be hanging out in Phoenix in 100 degree weather. It's another thing to be hanging out in Phoenix in 120 degree weather. And it's one thing to be hanging out in Phoenix in 120 degree weather if you have plenty of money and you can afford to air condition your place and you don't care about the electricity costs. It's another thing if you're working as a waitress in a restaurant and you've got three kids and you're trying to, you know, feed your family and then you've got, you know, $600 electric bill because your electric, your air conditioner is, you know, ancient and inefficient and you can't afford to run it very often. So... Um, you know, it's a different thing if you're working in a construction crew and you're outside um, than it is if you're working inside, you know, as a lawyer or something. So these questions of uninhabitability really depend on who you're talking about and 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 at what cost. But, you know, it's very clear that in these as these temperatures continue to rise, the Phoenix that people know and love, or, or Vegas, or Austin for that matter, that people have known and loved is going to be um, very different in the future. So in a case like Southern Florida, maybe we're, are we going to adapt to that? Are people just going to keep pumping water out or will they have to leave? Is, is, is flooding in that way maybe even more severe because it will require urban abandonment? Or are we just going to double down on all these things and keep innovating and adapting to all of these changing environments? Well, again, I don't think it's an either or thing. You know, there will be places that will adapt better than others. You know, you can adapt to rising seas. There's things that you can do. Um, you know, Miami, Tampa, all those places, New Orleans, you know, the whole Galveston here in Texas, all of these places, Norfolk on the uh, East Coast are all hugely uh, at risk with rising seas. And, you know, on one level, rising seas can be dealt with by elevating structures and changing building codes and things like that. But, you know, other parts of it can't or are much more difficult, like changing where airports are, for example, uh, that are often on low-lying places, changing um, septic systems that are dependent upon water levels for, you know, sanitation. Um, just even elevating roads and things like that. I mean, at a certain point, the costs of, I mean, could you engineering wise, could you elevate all of Miami three feet, four feet, five feet? Yes, you could. You know, it would cost bazillions of dollars and why would anybody want to do it? But you certainly could. And so there will be places that spend more and more money on adaptation, seawalls and things like that. And they will become islands of, you know, habitation in these in these higher sea level zones. And then there will be 
vast swaths of places that are just deemed not worth putting the money into and abandoned and it'll it'll have a very the coastline will be will look very different than it does now which places do you see changes likely to happen one potential i saw was labor laws around heat is that going to become much more regulated moving forward you have stories one in particular out of Oregon about a nursery worker dying. Is there going to be action on that? Is that something that's likely to change? Well, you would hope because it's um, not expensive um, way to save lives, right? All, all you require is, you know, small things like in, in requiring shade and water breaks every, you know, hour for 10 or 15 minutes during when heat levels get high. Is not it's not doesn't seem like it would be a difficult thing to do, but you know OSHA has been you know the Department of Labor has been working on federal regulations for heat standards for seven years now, and they still can't manage to do it because all the corporations um, complain that it'll hurt their productivity if they have workers you know hanging out under a tree for fifteen minutes and drinking water. Um, here in Texas, two weeks ago during the height of the heat dome here when it was you know, 112 degrees, 113 degrees here in Austin, the mayor, I mean, the governor of, of Texas, uh, Greg Abbott, signed legislation prohibiting any city or county in Texas from uh, instituting any laws requiring water or shade breaks. And again, in the idea that this was going to hurt productivity and stuff. So, you know, I don't know where this is going to go. You would think if it were a rational world that, yes, there would be increased heat standards and, you know, um, that there would be laws that keep workers from dying while they're on their jobs. But, you know, that may not be the world we live in right now. It's been remarkable to see how much action has occurred since the uh, Delta lawsuit over falsely representing offsets that they were buying like how mm -hmm. much movement that has had in the voluntary carbon market space wouldn't surprise me if there was a tortious claim from or even a class action lawsuit against some set of employers for heat related injury and death that would maybe create the regulation just through the common law just through the courts it wouldn't surprise me if that happened maybe maybe for you would that surprise you um no it wouldn't i mean i think lawsuits are of all, of all sorts uh, on these issues are gaining a lot of power you know i'll note that the um um, a county in uh, in in Oregon, uh, the county that, that Portland is located in, is is suing. It, it has filed a class action lawsuit against um, big oil companies for the heat wave uh, that killed a um, thousand people in the Pacific Northwest in in 2021, um, suing for damages and loss. Um, you know, it's one of a cascading number of these sorts of lawsuits um, around the world that are basically arguing that the fossil fuel industry has known for a long time what the consequences of th their of the continuing to burn fossil fuels has been that they've waged a disinformation campaign very effectively about that and that they are in some way to be determined by the courts, you know, liable for the losses and damages that are related to this. And, you know, and I've been covering climate change for 20 years, and um, there's no question that it just in the last five years, the momentum on these lawsuits has really 
um, accelerated and you know it's been it's been pushed along by these revelations that have come out about exxon mobile's modeling and how good it was in the 70s on on uh on warming related to co2 and, and on what's called attribution science where climate modelers can now say with virtual certainty as they did with the pacific northwest heat wave that it would not have happened without elevated co2 in the atmosphere so not all events can be attributed that clearly sometimes you know like there was a, an extreme flooding event in pakistan last year that they looked at also for attribution and they basically decided that no nah, this we can't this you know may well have happened without the elevated co2 we can't ascribe, describe it ascribe it specifically to that but with heat waves are particularly are, are easier to to attribute and not every heat wave can they directly can they say this would not have happened without co2 but a number of them they've been able to and the pacific northwest heat wave was one of them that was surprising to me that that level of attribution is even possible or getting getting better over time because this is one of the things that i saw people fighting over the the broad details of climate science about oh well there's just more monitoring stations people live more places so of course there's more damages that accrue over time because people live more places they're living so is that really are there really more extreme weather events or bigger ones or is it just we're better at measuring them now and this is sort of the anti-climate change is a real threat camp arguing this but it seems like progress has been made people can say there is a relationship between this uh co2 levels and a, an extreme climate event or extreme weather event yeah i mean and like i said not every event and um you know can they because what they basically do is they have very sophisticated models that allow them to run a counterfactual they can run the model you know they can program into the model like what happened and then they can run the same model with lower levels of co2 and see if they get a similar or same result and it's it was very um new science 10 years ago but it's gotten really really good recently and the lawyer i've talked to some lawyers about it and people who had been skeptical and you know they're basically saying yeah this is good enough to hold up in court so um you know the day will come very soon when we can point to a extreme event not all extreme events but some extreme events and say this was caused by elevated co2 levels which means basically it was caused by burning fossil fuels I mean, that would be a game changer. I remember watching the uh, Trump indictment stuff. And even if there's a mens rea intentionality component to it, where like he would have wanted uh, a coup to happen. The idea that you could say like his ideas, his words led to a one-to-one -one relationship between what happened after that is super hard to prove. Um, but if you could prove that, that's that's the whole thing. You have intentionality and you have the action that occurred, but climate change may be at the point of of having that. Yeah, again, not for every event and not in all cases, but in a lot of events. And I, I would encourage anyone who's interested in this. Um, I have a whole chapter in my book um, about this, about the whole history of attribution science. And it's um, a chapter called uh, Anatomy of a Crime Scene. And it focuses on uh, one climate researcher who's particularly well known in this field named Frederike Otto, and who is in, uh, in the UK. And her work is really phenomenal. And in fact, 
her recent report about these heat domes in the U.S. that was just released like a week ago was on the front page of the New York Times and most other newspapers around the world. And again, pointed to these heat waves and saying, yes, these were caused by elevated CO2 levels. And so this is not some kind of fringe hocus pocusy, you know, science some kid modeling stuff in the basement at MIT. This is really serious mainstream stuff that um, is, I think, going to have a dramatic implications on both the legal and the sort of moral uh, status of this relationship between fossil fuel, fossil fuel companies and climate damages. Yeah, that relationship really tightens up pretty quickly if you have all those elements. It certainly caught my ear in listening to this and, and my eye in reading this. Um, one other thing that caught my attention is the importance of naming heat waves and the fights over that. Can you retell that story here? Well, I mean, one of the difficult things um, about heat waves and about understanding heat in general is that there's no visual component to it. So unlike a hurricane where you look out your window and if the wind's blowing five miles an hour, um, it looks very different than when the wind is blowing 70 miles an hour. And you can just tell very quickly um, what's going on. You know, I'm looking out my window right now here in Austin and, you know, I know that it's 107 degrees, but it doesn't look any different looking out the window than it would if it were 70 degrees. And so visually we have a very hard time um, understanding the risks of heat. And so there's a, a group of uh, meteorologists and a, and a nonprofit group called um, the Adrian Arsht Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center, who's really been pushing um, this idea of naming heat waves similar to the way that we name storms um, with the idea that it helps people communicate in shorthand about the risks. And like, if we know you know, Hurricane Katrina is coming and then everyone can kind of get that idea. And it just, it becomes a kind of communication shorthand um, for weathercasters and others to communicate the risks of this. And there's a lot of controversy about it because unlike, unlike hurricanes, for example, which are rated strictly on wind speed, um, you know, 80 miles an hour, I don't remember the exact category, which category one, two, three, uh, where the wind speed rank is, but they're ranked by wind speed. Wind speed. You can't do the same thing with temperature because you know 100 degrees in Phoenix is very different than you know 100 degrees in you know Bangor, Maine. Um, and what people are used to, how wet. You know, there's a big difference between dry heat and wet heat. You know, the the dangers are different depending on how prepared buildings are how many people have air conditioning all that kind of thing but anyway it's an attempt to this idea of naming heat waves is an attempt to help make them visible you know and there's all this informal naming going on you know they they now right literally in the papers yesterday in the in the um times there was a story about um these um environmental groups or climate activist groups in europe um, naming these heat waves that are hitting Italy right now after oil companies, you know, and in order to connect them more clearly. And um, so I, I think it's kind of inevitable that we will have a kind of some kind of formal naming system for heat waves because we need to do something to do a better job of communicating about them. 
I imagine this uh, surprised many people uh, experience your book with too. Is my reaction pretty common where they're just like, didn't realize this was as big a deal as it is now. And it's, uh, do we need to do all this now? Do we need to start naming these heat events? Am I, am I alone in thinking this? Yeah, I mean, it's a new idea for sure. Um, and, you know, whether we need to start naming them now, I, I, I don't even know. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who would, who think it's a really good idea. I, I I think that, you know, I think it's a good idea too, but I don't think it's like job one. I think, you know, the, a more important idea is simply some kind of a ranking system. So if people are, because people get stuck on like, what should we name them? And should we name them after Greek gods? Should we name them after oil companies? Should we do them alphabetical? Should we, there's all kinds of politics in naming. And I think that, you know, just getting better at, ranking and messaging about them and having weathercasters talk about them is is what's kind of really important and whether that is just a ranking system like red yellow orange you know something like that or a numerical system or naming something that helps people communicate about the kind of risk that is coming with this heat wave and and to prepare for it right to check in on people to make sure that you're you know if you have air conditioning you that it's working and all that kind of thing that you have if you don't, you have access to cooling centers, um, not to go outside at certain times of the day, all these kinds of simple precautions that people take to stay safe during extreme heat events. I haven't read one of your earlier books about geoengineering, but you do tell a story about um, cross-country skiing across Baffin Island with David Keith, which is a great, um, yeah, it wasn't on my bingo card for this podcast about this book. Didn't expect that to happen, but you were covering this beat a long time ago about carbon removal, about geoengineering, when those things were much closer than they are now, I feel like they're very distinct, or at least often people in, in the carbon removal camp like them to be distinct categories. Right. How has this changed since you first wrote that book, which was, I think, 2010? Is that when you're geoengineering? Yeah. Yeah. What's, so much has happened oh my, since then. Yeah, so much has happened since then. Um, you know, obviously... Um, you know the solar the solar geoengineering part um which is the idea of putting particles in the stratosphere to sort of reflect away heat um is still remains a kind of taboo subject there's nobody doing it um there's still there's a startup uh, that was doing it that got a bunch of attention i don't know if you saw that but they weren't actually doing it i mean they were trying to do little science little experiments but i mean no one's doing it in the sense of flying airplanes around and actually trying to manipulate the, you know, the earth's climate. So it's still a, a, a kind of, um, you know, last ditch, nobody wants to talk about, but we may have to do someday kind of ideas. And so it, it's, that's kind of where it was 10 years ago, 13 years ago, when I wrote the book, um, it's advanced a little bit, but it, it's still um, on the fringes of science. Carbon removal, as you know, is completely different. Now, you know, uh, I was with, I remember visiting David Keith when he was building his sort of little first carbon removal device in an engineering bay at University of Calgary. And it was basically looked like it, you know, looked like it was made out of, you know, uh, silly putty and toilet paper rolls. I mean, it was, it was really a primitive thing. And, um, now, of course, carbon engineering is a big company. You have companies like Occidental Petroleum, you know, saying they're going to be the Tesla of carbon removal. 
you know, it's getting involved in the offset markets, you know, airlines are really, I mean, it's taken off in a big way, you know, and so, yes, they really have sort of um, split in their, in their acceleration into the future, uh, these two different um, ideas that 15 years ago were, were lumped under the same idea of geoengineering. I mean, David Keith is probably the best illustration of that, who is like firmly a godfather of both and so involved there. I see many people, I don't want to out anyone in particular, but many of the carbon removal people that I've spoken to recently, that solar radiation management at the very least needs to be well understood. And many of them think it's likely to be necessary, even if we don't want it. Do you think that's that's true? Should we be supportive of more research and maybe even get comfortable with the idea of deploying it? Well, I don't. I certainly don't think we should get comfortable with the idea of deploying it. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's you know something we don't want to do unless we have to do it. But you know, I think the idea that it's taboo to talk about, that it's taboo to do any kind of principled research on. You know, I think that we need to know. I still think we need to even. And this is even this is very controversial because a lot of people think that we should, this should just be, you know, um, like one of those taboo areas of science that nobody should tread into at all because the con potential consequences of fucking it up are so huge. But um, I do think that, um, you know, we need to know more about, about the real life consequences of it. And, you know, there's um, David and others have, supported the idea of small scale research where you actually you know put part some particulates in the atmosphere very very small amount that you know rains out almost immediately but just to get a real world distribution idea of how they work and you know i i think more knowledge is good in this context and i kind of support the idea of of um a well-structured well-regulated well-run scientific research uh, project on this um, because there is some sort of you know tragic inevitability about this um, in the sense that I think that it's the way we're going at some point somebody's going to try it and, and um, the more we know about it the better but um, you know I, I, I don't know how you exactly structure that program and how you get the rules in place. And it's a very, very, as you know, and probably most listeners know, it's an incredibly uh, divisive and emotional um, discussion whenever you bring up geoengineering, solar geoengineering. I was surprised that I heard people recently speaking with such comfort, or it was almost taken for granted that it made just become inevitable at some point that we will not decarbonize as fast. You have multiple sections in, in your book where you just said, we need to stop burning fossil fuels. That's the main thing we have to do. Are we going to do that? And if not, we should prepare ourselves for, you know, much more extreme measures to be taken. But I don't think any of us would choose that freely. Well, probably some people, but it's unlikely that many would. Yeah, no, you'd have to be insane to say, you know, we should just keep burning fossil fuels and, we'll just geoengineer our way out of this. I mean, that's that's insane. Uh, that makes no sense whatsoever. But, you know, the fact is, is we're not doing a very good job of eliminating fossil fuels. And 
yes, renewable energy is cheaper virtually everywhere in the world for new builds. We're building a lot of it. But, you know, the, the scale and speed that we have to do to really deep decarbonize, you know, our power system is just enormous. And so, you know, even though we're building a lot of renewable power around the world, we're still, you know, we're still burning a lot of fossil fuels. When you look at the only metric that really matters, which is the CO2 levels in the Mauna Loa, you know, graph of, of, um, of CO2 in the atmosphere, the, the curve is just going up and up and up and up. And so, you know, as long as that curve keeps going up, as long as we keep adding CO2 into the atmosphere, it's going to keep getting hotter. And as it keeps getting hotter, we're seeing more and more of these kinds of consequences, you know, that we didn't anticipate. And the risks we see, even with these extreme heat events now, we're seeing how dangerous it is just at this level. And when you think about, you know, a kind of doubling of this, of the amount of heat that we've added to the atmosphere over the next, over the rest of this century, that's really uh, alarming as to what that would mean for our lives and the lives of every living thing on this planet. So, you know, we got to figure something out. I, 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 I don't know what the answer will be, um, but we're, we're doing at once a great job of changing the economic equation on renewable power. You know, 15 years ago, everybody was saying, oh, you got to build coal and gas plants because we need to get cheap power to poor people because, you know, uh, energy is the, the way, is the engine of development and we need to, and we need development. And that was sort of always true. And then, you know, now that's flipped though. If you want to get cheap power to people, the best way to do it is renewable power, solar panels, wind, and things like that. So the, it's not an economic argument anymore. Now it's a, now it's, you know, we've slipped into this sort of cultural argument stuff where, you know, do you believe what these people are telling you about climate change? Do you believe science, you know, or, you know, or do you, or do you not? Do you believe these, you know, elites are trying to run the world and, you know, George Soros is, is, you know, in this conspiracy with Bill Gates to control our energy systems. And I mean, it's just like these, it's gotten entrenched in culture wars in a way that it hadn't, or it wasn't 10 years ago. And that's a very different political dynamic. Really strange too, because being dependent upon a couple big oil companies versus having your own homestead generated power. I feel like that's that back to the land, small scale conservative, especially if you're like a populist conservative of not being dependent upon the elites. That's, that's pretty powerful. You even see things like in Texas where renewables in certain parts of Texas have surprisingly done quite well. And at least the reportage that I've read about it. Um, and it, apparently that's an economic thing. It doesn't even get to the level of culture. It's just about, is this cheaper and easier and less polluting? It's kind of just a simple equation at that point. Yeah, well, you know, logic and evidence and simple facts and things are are not a big part of the discussion right now. Um, but, you know, it, it's absolutely true. I mean, I'm here in Austin, Texas, and, you know, it's the belly of the fossil fuel beast. And, you know, nobody talks about it here or they don't talk about it enough. But, you know, Texas is a leader in wind and solar in this country. You know, during 
these extreme heat waves of the last um, couple of weeks, we've been getting up to 30% of the power on the grid from renewables, which is amazing. Wow. And, and not only that, it's cheaper. And not only that, uh, the reason we'd be getting so much renewables on the grid is because a lot of the thermal plants have been going down because these thermal plants have, you know, they're much more mechanical, right? A, a natural gas plant has a lot more moving parts than a solar panel does. And these moving parts and this, uh, these, these, the, the mechanisms of thermal plants are much more vulnerable to heat. So they go, they are more likely to go offline during these extreme heat events, whereas renewables thrive in this kind of climate. And so Texas is proving the case that, you know, not only are renewal is a renewable grid cheaper, but it's also more reliable in these kinds of extreme conditions. And for a place like for that to be happening in a place like Texas is, I think, a real landmark event. And, uh, you know, in a rational world would be a real turning point. But, you know, we don't live in a rational world. Jeff, about two years ago, I watched your uh, debate. Can carbon removal bring us to net zero? Do you, do you remember that event? Yeah. Why did it go so poorly? It was one of the worst carbon removal discussions I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> it would. I felt like the the terms were not well defined. People like this, Julio and uh, Elizabeth Yampier. Julio Friedman was the other discussant. I feel like they were talking past each other. And it, I think carbon removal people worry that's the future, where carbon removal gets tied up with carbon capture and, and oil and gas, and are not well understood. Environmental justice people are concerned, justifiably so, that carbon removal is going to ignore their interest and create another cancer alley kind of situation, um, like petrochemical or just oil and gas infrastructure generally causes. Yeah, sorry to put you on the spot about that. I know it wasn't wasn't your fault. It probably got out of hand, but why why was that such an intense carbon removal debate? Well, um, you know, I, I I don't really know why it was. Um, you know, I think that Julio and Elizabeth came at this from entirely different perspectives. It, it was an example of how far, you know, these sort of two polarized parts of the climate movement, energy movement really are, even though they're ostensibly on the same side. Um, you know, they don't understand each other very well. Um, uh, there's a lot of confusion about carbon removal, geoengineering, carbon capture, you know, all of this stuff is very new to a lot of environmentalists and uh, environmental activists. They don't really understand the difference in the, what they're talking about. And there's a, been a lot of um, distrust sowed by uh, the oil and gas industry, who have done a lot of greenwashing over, you know, obviously over the decades, and to some extent, their embrace of 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 this um, has not helped. Uh, even though it has helped in the sense of moving it along financially and engineering wise, and um, you know, there's a lot of virtues in you know a big company like Occidental Petroleum or something like that um, really staking a claim on this but you know there's just this enormous gulf of distrust and disinformation between these sort of various wings of the 
um, environmental and climate movement that I think was on display there. And then there, and there was also just personality stuff that, um, you know, some people get along and communicate better than others. And the other, sometimes people are just on different wavelengths mm. entirely. I imagine you're, at the very least, you're very curious about carbon removal and you have been for a long time. Um, do you think that we're doing the right thing or by focusing our careers um, on carbon removal, is that a good place to focus right now? Do you think it's a sideshow, some combination? What do you, what do you think about carbon removal? Well, I mean, I think it's obviously a really important technology long-term. I think, um, you know, there's no question in my mind that, you know, we're going to develop technologies that let us kind of modulate carbon levels. It's a, that's a really important idea. Um, you know, and, and, so in in that sense, I I I think it's fabulous, and I think that um, all of this progress that I've seen in the last decade around it is very encouraging and inspiring. I think the problem is when it gets to be seen as or used as a way just to continue burning fossil fuels, a way to extend the life of oil and gas companies, a way to say, you know we don't have to worry about climate change because we have these machines that can suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. And people don't grasp this um, scope and scale of this project to, to really take meaningful amounts of CO2 out of the atmosphere, how enormous this you know, scaling up has to be. And you know, the, the simple fact is we are in a climate emergency right now. And you know, technologies that will make a difference in 70 or 80 years on at scale you know that's great but we need to do stuff now and we need to like stop burning fossil fuels now we need to get off of fossil fuels now we need you know this we need to do both the short-term immediate emergency stuff and the long-term you know thinking about technology thinking about stuff like carbon removal and stuff so i think that that sort of time scale gets um, confused. And I think that a lot of people feel that the amount of money that is being poured into carbon removal is, you know, could be better used in other ways. You know, it's very easy to see how you can make money in carbon removal. Um, it's very hard to see how you can make money in adapting cities to, you know, better weather um, climate extremes. You know, you don't make, you're not going to get, make billions of dollars building better bus stops for for people right or you do a SaaS company that does it yeah, yeah. we do pretty well yeah or planting trees or you know building cooling centers or i mean there's just a lot of things that we need to do in the near term to keep people alive um and to help our world adapt and to move more quickly away from fossil fuels. And I think a lot of people see carbon removal as a kind of brain and money drain away from these more urgent measures. Hmm. I've seen a little bit of a sea change in carbon removal recently, where I previously used to hear people say things like, we should work with oil and gas because they have the infrastructure 
and expertise to run the system in reverse. And I don't hear that as much anymore. I think things like the Oxy CEO's comments that happened recently saying that direct air capture is going to extend fossil fuel infrastructure's lifespan for decades. I think carbon removal companies are increasingly skeptical about becoming a concubine to oil and gas. You're nodding very affirmatively. You think this is, we should stay away. <laughs> I think that's a very dangerous place to be because, hmm. um, uh, within the climate movement, you know, and I mean, there's just, they are not a, you know, when I say they, there's obviously all different kinds of actors in this world, just as there are different kinds of people. And by saying they, you're painting with a very broad brush, but, you know, they are, um, have proven themselves very well over the years to be, you know, not good actors, um, right. That they have, um, pulled political levers, uh, spent billions on disinformation, political manipulation. There's a huge gulf of distrust around, you know, when you look at the, what I don't even remember the number now, what was it? So, uh, what, what's more than a trillion dollars in profits last year. You know, I mean, the enormous, you know, profits that they're making during these extreme times and, you know, there's just a lot of uh, reasons to think that they are not, um, you know, the best people to buddy up with in in at a moment like this, um, both for the larger public good and even for the good of people who are really, um, you know, engaged in in carbon removal and, and who and I and I and I'm not dissing carbon removal i think it's a really important technology i just think it's a question of you know where it fits into the larger movement and where resources are sort of deployed right just never really wanted an industry as powerful as that to be backed into a corner where their only options are to be stranded or nationalized or something like that and hopefully having an honorable pivot available to them maybe seized upon at some point but I'm increasingly comfortable with the idea that I'm being naive and maybe that is not forthcoming. You don't, mm -hmm. you think they would just fight it all the way, but I think you, you, you don't want to back them into the corner. Do you, shouldn't they have like a way out? Well, I mean, no one's talking about shutting them down. There's no, like, you know, that's not going to happen. You know, it's just a question of like, for example, you know, stopping new exploration, right. Saying, you know, we're not doing more exploration. We're not, giving you more permits to drill in the North Sea. We're not giving you more permits to drill in the Petroleum Reserve in Alaska. You know, there is a finite end and we are, and you know, you need to, we're going to sort of enforce that, right? And you know, from a government point of view, um, you know, I, I think that this, it's pretty obvious that the strategy of oil and gas industry in general, and again, there are, good actors and bad actors and there it's not monolithic there are certainly people who are doing a much more a much better job and are much more progressive and sort of trustworthy than others but you know the basic idea and as you just said with you know the comments about um carbon removal is to extend this as long as possible right to, to slow this transition down to renewables uh, and to the elimination of fossil fuels as long as possible for all kinds of obvious um, balance sheet reasons, stranded assets, all kinds of things. So 
to the degree that carbon removal has become seen is become seen as just a tool to extend that slow transition that is a very bad place to be politically for this technology because you're just going to be seen as a tool for these larger interests and not as a solution but just as a tool and that that is i think a bad place to be it's very strange to me too because if oil and gas companies were forced to pay for their emissions to be truly negated with permanent carbon removal uh it would very radically change the economics of oil and gas in general like the price would go up quite a bit and would hopefully encourage them to decarbonize faster or to switch to being renewable energy companies i hope but i also yeah, yeah go ahead yeah well, I, and I just want to underscore that, you know, there are a lot of people working in the carbon removal space who I like have huge respect for, you know, you mentioned Julio Friedman before a well-known figure in this space. I think he's fantastic. I, I, oh, I've I known, sure. known him for years. He's just fantastic. I think David Keith is fantastic. I think David Keith cares more about the planet and the climate and the, what the right strategy is and how to manage all of this than almost anyone I know. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of really smart, um, thoughtful uh, people in, engaged in this. And, and you know, so I, I hesitate talking about it in, in, a, in a kind of broad kind of way, but, um, you know, and at a, at a certain point, there's no, there's no, like you know how you control the technology is beyond anyone's kind of reach right i mean these for one thing these oil and gas companies have a lot of money and a lot of money comes with a lot of power and you know they can do with this what they want one proposal i've seen is to say that carbon removal can be used for legacy emissions but shouldn't be used for current emissions that might address a fair amount of the problem yeah. And, you know, I have to say that, I mean, I wrote my book about all this 13 years ago. Uh, my most, this book we're talking about now, The Heat Will Kill You First, is took up four years of my life. The book before that was about sea level rise. And so I, I, I do not want to, like, um, uh, in any way advertise myself as up to date on the latest um, proposals and sort of dynamics in the in the carbon removal business, because I am certainly not. Oh, certainly not. Yeah. Um, that's a lot of beats to cover. There's too many things happening in climate these days to to really cover all those beats. Well, but the interesting things for me, so so like we're talking about carbon removal and, you know, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I remember David Keith's first carbon removal device made of, like I said, of, you know, silly putty and toilet paper rolls um, in the engineering base. So it gives me a really interesting perspective on these the movement of these technologies and and the movement of the sort of climate and energy uh world in general you know i mean like i said the economic change in how we produce energy is so dramatic in the last you know 15 years and just this whole conversation you know shifting away from you know the the economics being reversed is such a, a, an enormous deal that i think a lot of people just haven't grasped yet and you know here in texas 
you know, I moved here four years ago and you, and you, you really feel the sort of fossil fuels sort of legacy power, you know, that they have uh, a lot of the institutions here, including the government and state government, but also universities, philanthropic, philanthropic groups and all that are funded by oil money. And there's a lot of cultural and political inertia behind keeping that alive, even though the economics don't really make sense anymore. And so it's a really interesting kind of dynamic watching that shift, you know, and watching these new energy, clean energy entrepreneurs rising. And, and then, you know, Elon Musk moving the Tesla gigafactory here. And, you know, Elon's a whole other, you know, nightmare of paradox and contradictions. But um, it's just, so there's some advantage in being, just having been around long enough to watch a lot of these changes play out over the landscape. Yeah, what a what a purview you've had, and also listening to and being like, wait, did I hear that right? Is that is this the same David Keith? I'm like, oh, you're going on a month long vacation with David Keith. <laughs> you're as plugged in as anyone to the latest in climate just by that much David Keith FaceTime. You're yeah. good, Jeff. Yeah, in a little tent on ice in the middle of nowhere for six weeks. Yeah, with the shock. I know, I know David very well. And uh, and I, I can only tell you that this trip and all the things we went through, and the many much hardship and difficulty only um, increased my respect for him. Yeah, it's very cool to hear. Well, the book is great. If you're listening, you should definitely pick up a copy of "The Heat Will Kill You First." I very much enjoyed it, and also "The Water Will Come" is great. It's it's a great book because the work on the military preparedness angle that we started the show with is fascinating. I think people assume that the right left dynamic is going to play out in the same way. And it doesn't, when it comes to sea level rise, it's super interesting reportage. Check out that one too. I need to catch up on your old books. Maybe next time we speak, I'll have uh, all of them under my belt and I'll be fully, fully ready for, for your next one. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thanks for being here, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It's a great conversation. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.